If you're the henchman of a dictator, a gangster or a murderer, then Monday was a bad day. A new law made it possible for Britain to ban people from the country for human rights abuses, to freeze their assets and to stop blood money seeping through the system. They said, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you possibly sanction the people who killed my father? We speak to the man who spent the last decade campaigning for this new law after his friend was killed in a Russian prison. I made a vow on the day that he was murdered that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and devote all of my time, all of my resources and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Bill Browder versus Vladimir Putin and how Britain adopted the Magnitsky Act. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mr. Speaker, these sanctions are a forensic tool. They allow us to target perpetrators without punishing the wider people of a country that may be affected. The regulations will enable us to impose travel bans and asset freezes against those involved in serious human rights violations. On uh, Monday of this week, I was sitting in Dominic Rabb, the Foreign Secretary's large office at the Foreign Commonwealth Office, with Natalia Magnitsky, the widow of my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and Nikita, their son. And we're imposing sanctions on individuals involved in some of the most notorious human rights violations in recent years. We sat in the office and at first watched on a large screen Dominic Rabb giving a speech to Parliament in which he introduced the Magnitsky legislation and brought it into law. Russian dictators and oligarchs and kleptocrats like to come to the UK and um, buy property and send their kids to boarding school, and we have something that we can take away from them, and that's, that's what we did. This government, and I hope this House and this country, makes it crystal clear to those who abuse their power to inflict unimaginable suffering. We will not look the other way. You cannot set foot in this country, and we'll seize your blood-drenched, ill-gotten gains if you try. And then he came back uh, to the office and sat with 
Natalia and Nikita and basically honored them for the sacrifice that Sergei had made in the interest of justice in Russia. How did that feel? How did it feel watching the screen? It was a very emotional moment as he told the story of Sergei Magnitsky, of how Sergei Magnitsky had exposed a massive Russian government corruption scheme, how he had been killed for it, and how they had covered up the murder, and that the British government was now recognizing his sacrifice and making a law in his name. And for us, it was extremely moving. We've been fighting for justice for 10 years. We've been fighting to get the British government to do this for 10 years, and it finally was all happening all at once right in front of our eyes. It felt very emotional. It felt like years of hard work, and it felt like a vindication for Sergei and his, for his family. So take me back to the start. You said this has been 10 years in the making. You've been campaigning for a whole decade. How did it all begin? Tell me about Sergei Magnitsky. So... To understand how it all began, I need to tell you a little bit about myself. I I went out to Russia in 1996 after the Berlin Wall came down to set up an investment business called the Hermitage Fund. And I discovered massive corruption in the companies that I was investing in. And I decided to try to fight the corruption by exposing it. And that led to a big conflict with the regime, with the Putin regime, And I was eventually kicked out of the country in 2005, declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided by the police. And that was the moment that I hired Sergei to investigate why they raided the office and to help me figure out what was going on. And Sergei investigated it. And he discovered the purpose of the raid was to seize our documents and then use those documents in order to steal $230 million of taxes that my firm had paid to the Russian government. Sergei figured it out, and he then exposed it, testified against those officials. And then about five weeks after he testified against them, the same officials he testified against came to his home on the 24th of November 2008, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony. And they put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no um, toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of all this was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million. And he did so on my instruction. And Sergei was a man of incredible principle and integrity. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more upsetting and more painful than the physical pain they were subjecting him to. So he refused. And they just kept on ratcheting up the torture and the pressure. And eventually he got sick. He ended up Uh, losing about 20 kilos, developing terrible pains in his stomach. And he was diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones and needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. About a week before the operation, they came to him again, again, asked him to sign a false confession. Again, he refused. And in retaliation, they abruptly moved him to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, 
which is considered to be one of the toughest and most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, they had no medical facilities there. And so for him, he needed treatment for this terrible ailment that he was suffering from, pancreatitis and gallstones, extremely painful. And it was just horrible. He went into a terrible downward spiral. They refused him all medical attention. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system, begging for medical attention. And every branch of the criminal justice system basically either ignored him or denied him in writing any opportunity to be treated. And on the night of November 16, 2009, he went into critical condition. On that evening, the Buchirka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore, and so they put him in an ambulance. They sent him to a different prison, but instead of putting him in the emergency room of the prison that had a medical wing, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died. Sergei was 37 years old, and he left a wife and two children. And for me, that murder changed my life forever. And they did that because he wouldn't sign a fake confession, because he found evidence of corruption. Yep. Basically, he found evidence of corruption. They wanted him to take the blame for their corruption. He refused to perjure himself. And in the end, they killed him for it. So for me, the problem is, I mean, the, 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 this is the most heartbreaking thing you could ever imagine. And the, the real issue is he was killed because he worked for me. If he hadn't been working for me, he'd still be alive. And that responsibility and that guilt has stuck with me from that day on. And I made a vow on the day that he died, the day that he was murdered, that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and devote all of my time, all of my resources, and all of my energies to go after the people who killed him and make sure they face justice. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years. Originally, we tried to get justice in Russia, um, but that proved to be totally impossible. The authorities circled the wagons. Vladimir Putin got involved personally in exonerating everybody who played a role in his false arrest, torture, and murder. They promoted and gave state honors to the people who were most complicit. And they even put Sergei Magnitsky on trial three years after they killed him in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. It's just a crazy, lawless place. And we realized that nothing good was ever going to happen in Russia. No justice was ever going to come from Russia. And so I said, if we can't get justice in Russia, then we have to get justice outside of Russia. It's been a decade-long march for justice. Before we get on to that, tell me a bit more about the man at the centre of it all. What was Sergei Magnitsky like as a person? Well, I would describe Sergei as a stubborn idealist. He was a person who, who thought of Russia as what he wanted it to be, as opposed to what it really was. I mean, in a certain way, he was the good face of Russia. Sergei was one of these people who... You know, you, you everybody took to him because he's just such a good person and a decent person and a generous person and, and a brave person. And everything about him is sort of what Russia should be. And what makes the symbolism of this story so poignant is that they, they killed the good. 
the bad killed the good, the bad won. That's what's happening on a much bigger scale than just this one case in Russia right now. He certainly sounds like a very determined idealist, you know, determined to see the best in Russia. But he must have been aware of the risks. And yet he carried on. Well, he was surely aware of the risks to a certain extent. I I don't think any of us could have imagined that he would be killed in the end. We all knew how unpleasant his experience was. We, We all were just tortured by his torture. But my worst case scenario was that he was going to go to jail for seven years for some for the trumped up charges they had arrested him for. And we would have to sort of nurse him back to life and health afterwards. But the idea that, that he would be killed was just that was beyond my worst case scenario and, and surely beyond his worst case scenario. But having said all that, he did something very unique in his 358 days in detention He wrote 450 criminal complaints about the mistreatment and his abuse in custody. He was this ultimate lawyer. Most people were afraid to say anything about anything, but he was saying everything about everything. And he would write these complaints by hand, and once a month he would hand them to his lawyer who would file them, but he'd make copies before he filed them. And so the authorities all ignored every one of them, but we have copies of them. And from that, we have the most granular, detailed record of human rights abuse that's come out of Russia in the last 35 years. Maybe he had a premonition of what was going to happen, and he wanted to write it all down. And certainly what he has, and what we have now from him, is a testimony from the grave of what happened. And from that testimony from the grave, we were able to show the world the true face of the Putin regime that we're not living in the modern era. This is like 1937 during the Stalin era, during the Great Terror in Russia. It's no different the way Sergei described what happened to him. When you described trying to get justice in Russia, you said that Putin himself had got involved with this. I mean, that seems so odd. This, it's a case of corruption, presumably quite low level. It, you know, you'd assume it's some officials along the way who've siphoned off money. Why would Putin be getting involved? Well, it didn't make much sense at the time. We thought the same thing that you just said, which is that this is some kind of, it wasn't low level. I mean, it was $230 million, but let's call that medium to high level, but it's not presidential level corruption. But what we discovered since then, recently, is that, and this came through the Panama Papers, was that Putin has various people who are his representatives or nominees. One of them is a famous cellist who is exposed through the Panama Papers. His name is Sergei Roldugin. He's Putin's best friend from childhood. He's a cellist in a famous orchestra in St. Petersburg. And according to the Panama Papers, he was worth $2 billion dollars. But we discovered from our own analysis and from our money laundering investigation that Sergei Roldugin slash Putin received some of the money from the crime that Sergei Magnitsky exposed and was killed over. And so when when you ask why does Putin care, because he got some of the loot. That does make more sense. What was it like for you operating in Russia at the time? You know, knowing that you can inadvertently step on the president's toes and you never quite know what repercussions that might have. I mean, how did you even go about trying to get justice? Was it very dangerous? 
Well, so remember, I was kicked out of Russia in 2005, and we didn't ever think we were going to get justice in Russia. And so my campaign was in the West. But the answer is it was dangerous. It is dangerous. It's dangerous to this day. They've threatened to kill me. They've organized to try to kidnap me. They've issued eight Interpol red notices for me to have me arrested. They've come to the British government trying to beg them to extradite me back to Russia. I've been arrested in Madrid. I was arrested in Geneva on a Russian warrant. They really have it out for me. From my perspective, though, Sergei had put himself in such harm's way, even from prison, standing up to these people, that I owe it to him not to be intimidated in a far safer situation than he was ever in and standing up to them myself. How did you find out about things like the plot to have you kidnapped? On that particular case, I got a call from the U.S. government, from the U.S. Department of Justice, and um, they told me that they have gathered credible intelligence that there was a plot to organize my kidnapping and delivery back to Russia. You start altering your routines, you start limiting the amount of information and the number of people who know where you are, you go into hiding, you do lots of different things that will hopefully keep you from getting into their hands. And, and I succeeded. Nobody kidnapped me, but it was a scary time for sure. Do you think you're still in danger now? Do you still find yourself looking over your shoulder? Well, I've never been looking over my shoulder per se, because the moment you start looking over your shoulder, they've already won. Having said that, I'm still a huge target. So you realised you couldn't get justice in Russia. Where did you turn next? Well, when it became obvious there was no possibility of getting justice inside of Russia, I said, we need to get justice outside of Russia. And then the question is, how do you get justice outside of Russia? And I looked around and I said, well, what tools exist in international law to get justice? And I discovered there were no tools. There was no possibility of getting justice based on the current legislation out there. And I couldn't live with that. I said to myself, if there's no tools, then we need to create one. And I looked at the situation and I said to myself, the people who killed Sergei didn't kill him for ideology or religious reasons. They killed him for money. They killed him for $230 million. And those people don't keep that money in Russia. They keep that money in the West. And I said to myself, the one thing we could do is take away their ability to travel to the West and use the West as their piggy bank to keep their money safe. And I originally took this idea to members of the, of the Senate, of the U.S. Senate, the late John McCain. Obviously, I support this resolution on rule of law in Russia and the case of Sergei Magnitsky. Who was a Republican and Senator Benjamin Cardin, a Democrat. And I told them the story that I've just shared with you. And I said, can we ban their visas and freeze their assets? And these two senators said, yes, we can. And we can make legislation to do that. And no matter what you hear, make no mistake, it will become law. And will contain the full array of essential measures, visa bans, asset freezes, and financial sanctions. And that originally became known as the Magnitsky Act. And originally just applied to Sergei Magnitsky, not to anyone else, just to Sergei. And they put it on the books in... October of 2010, and literally the week afterwards, their phones lit up 
with calls from other victims in Russia. And the calls were all the same. They said, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. Can you possibly sanction the people who killed my father? Can you sanction the people who killed my brother, my sister, my aunt? And after about a dozen of these calls, these two senators realized they were onto something much bigger than just the Magnitsky case, that they had found a new tool to deal with this type of issue. And so they added 65 words to the law to not just sanction the people who killed Sergei, but the people who do other gross human rights abuses in Russia. The investigation into Magnitsky's death is not over yet, and it's not yet clear who's right and who's wrong there, what the situation is. And on December 14, 2012, it became a federal law signed by President Obama. The foreign ministry announced right away that Russia will react, and I consider it absolutely reasonable. That and what was so interesting about this was that Vladimir Putin blew his top. He, he just got so angry. And he's a guy who mostly keeps his cool. But he got so angry. The Russian authorities are angry at what they consider U.S. interference. Russian lawmakers banned American citizens from adopting Russian children. And in retaliation, he immediately banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. It's hard not to see the response by the Russian authorities as anything but retaliatory. Which effectively sentenced some of these orphans to death because a lot of the orphans were sick ones that were getting adopted into, into American families and going, getting medical treatment in America, which wasn't available in Russia. And so he's killing his own orphans to make a point. And he declared that it was his single largest foreign policy priority to have the Magnitsky Act repealed. And it got under his skin. And if you've ever played the game Battleship, we got a direct hit. In other words, we found something that really, really worked based on his reaction. And these two senators, instead of being intimidated, they said, wait a second, if Putin is so mad about this, there's a lot of other deserving dictators out there as well. And so they, they then widened the law and they, they proposed the Global Magnitsky Act, which passed four years later in 2016, to go after bad guys everywhere. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Asma Mayer, and if you enjoy the Stories of Our Times podcast, make a mental note to catch my breakfast programme with Stig Abel on Times Radio. Wherever you are in the world, join us as we talk to special guests about everything you need to know for the day ahead. Listen to our morning show for free on DAB Radio, your smart speaker, online at times.radio and via our Times Radio app. Every Monday to Thursday, 6am to 10am on Times Radio. Know your times. Having succeeded in America, Bill Browder wanted Britain and Europe and all the other countries where blood money is stashed away to adopt the Magnitsky Act too. It's just a very, very powerful piece of legislation because all these people were immune from any consequence before because there was nothing that anyone could do. And all of a sudden, this is something that can be done. And it touches these people profoundly because even if they have no assets in the United States... The moment that they're on a sanctions list, nobody in the world wants to do business with them anymore. The British government hasn't always been keen to discuss Russia. A report by the Intelligence and Security Committee on Russian interference in UK politics has been repeatedly delayed. Yesterday, just two days after the Magnitsky Act was made law, the Prime Minister was again facing urgent calls to release the report – after more than 100,000 people signed a petition demanding its publication. I was a um, contributor to the Russia report in the Intelligence and Security Committee, and I was very upset that the report got quashed before um, it could be published. And they, they were in touch with me right before it was going to be published to, to tell me and, and warn me that it was going to be published and there might be some blowback or, you know, I should prepare myself for, you know, something. And then it didn't get published. My evidence was pretty powerful, but my evidence was all about how the Russians let oligarchs, Russian oligarchs who enriched themselves off the corruption from the state, and they'd use those oligarchs to then hire Britons to do intelligence work against their enemies in Britain, which was one of the aspects that surely got into the report. And uh, and interesting, the Britons that they hire are sometimes highly politically connected Britons, including members of the House of Lords. And what I found is that it was being done on a bipartisan basis. There's there, there no party that was being targeted. They're, the Russians were equally happy to have conservatives or labor or Lib Dems, anyone who's ready to sell themselves for a few rubles. One of the reasons the Magnitsky Act could be a particularly potent weapon in the UK is because London has long been awash with Russian money and attempts to buy influence. I think um, London is one of the centres of Russian money. They call it Londongrad. Having said that, that also gives us huge leverage. That's why the Magnitsky Act is so important, because if we have a piece of legislation which can freeze that money, then we're in a very powerful position. And we are in that position, and we should use it. And, And that's one of the reasons I'm so happy about this legislation now existing and being used, because you you have to imagine that every Russian who's got a, a bad CV who has money in London is worrying about whether that money is safe now. The way it works is, is that a Russian government official will commit a fraud in Russia based on the their conflict of interest in their government job. Let's say a minister of health care will steal money that's meant for health care, and then that money will then be wired to the UK to buy a um, expensive house in Belgravia. 
the um, lawyers working on the transaction will look the other way. The real estate agents will look the other way. The bank that's processing the payment will look the other way. Perhaps they don't want to have it in their own name, and so they'll hire a company formation agent who will set up a company and, and produce directors who are respectable British citizens who will be looking the other way. And everybody will be at the trough, picking up fees and expenses and per diems for working for the gangsters from Russia, which is one of the reasons why it's been so hard to get things done um, to punish the Russians, because there's a lot of people who benefit from it. Of course. There have also been suggestions, particularly after the secrecy surrounding the Russia report and and the Mueller report in America, there have been suggestions of Russian money being used to influence politics here. From your knowledge of the Russian system and all your work in America, do you think those reports are credible? A hundred percent. There's no question. The Russians uh, try to influence politics everywhere. As you may remember, the Russian government was caught trying to uh, involve themselves in the U.S. election 2016 with Trump. I think anybody who looks at the, the Russians were involved in the Scottish referendum, in the Brexit vote. They were involved in the um, Basque separatist movement. They're involved in the Catalonian situation. They're involved in Germany and France. They hacked the um, Macron's emails a week before the French presidential election. They get involved in every single democratic political situation at very low cost compared to the cost of doing you know, military stuff, which is a big cost and it's all very symmetric. This is asymmetric. They can do it at a low cost. It's plausibly deniable and they do it everywhere. And there's no question they're doing it in the UK. There's no question they did it in the UK. But if you're a Russian gangster, Russian kleptocrat, then your property is not safe in the UK. And that's a very scary thing, particularly for people who kill for money. You know, if they value money more than human life <laughs> and that money is no longer safe, that's as bad a thing as you could possibly do to them. The current list focuses just on people involved in human rights abuse. In the American version of the Magnitsky Act, they focus on both human rights abuse and on kleptocracy, corruption. This is a deficiency that exists in the current legislation, which I've made the government aware of and many other people have made the government aware of. The EU is the next battleground for Bill Browder. He'd like to see the Magnitsky Act passed there, too. For Sergei's family, seeing Britain adopt the law has meant a lot. When you're in a situation where your husband or your father was mercilessly killed by a criminal state, the biggest fear you have, other than the tragic feeling of loss is that that person's death was meaningless. That it's just all for nothing. And when Sergei's widow and Sergei's son were sitting there in the foreign secretary's office, they saw that, well, his death was terrible and tragic and, and a permanent loss. It wasn't meaningless. That his death had meaning. His sacrifice had meaning. That he gave something back through a sacrifice, and that's this law in his name. And for them, 
that must give them a little bit of satisfaction and a feeling of hope that there's something good that's come from this terrible tragedy. And what about Sergei? You said he was a, a stubborn idealist. Is a law that targets corrupt human rights abusers a fitting tribute? Is it the sort of law he would have been pleased to see passed? I'm sure he would have. I'm sure he would have loved to have lived another 50 years and grown to be an old man. But in the absence of that, I'm sure if he's looking down, he'd probably be feeling some satisfaction that in his name, something very good was happening for justice for a lot of other victims in the world. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Bill Browder. The producer was Poppy Damon. The executive producer is Leo Hornack, and the deputy executive producer is also Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by the brilliantly named Breakmaster Cylinder. If you get a chance, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. Also, you can keep up to date and well-informed on coronavirus and so much more every day with a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk slash subscribe to find out more. See you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 